0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. People, Planet, Profit. On BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to People, Planet, Profit, the show that looks at developments and debate in the ESG space. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. It's not a question of if, but when. Countries the world over have acknowledged the need to transition to renewable energy in order to reduce carbon emissions that contribute to irreversible climate change. However, for developing countries like Malaysia that rely heavily on carbon resources to generate energy, can this shift to renewables be done without economic development also taking a hit? Today, we're exploring some of the recommendations being put forth in a policy paper on Malaysia's energy transition issued by the Think Tank Center for Market Education. Joining me is the co-author of the paper, Prahash Mehrotra, Research Fellow at the Adam Smith Center in Singapore. Prahash, good morning. Thanks very much for joining me.
1: Good morning, Yeah, It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to your show.
0: So I'd like to start um, with the specific approach that you've taken in dissecting the issue of energy transition. Namely, you've applied the philosophy of eco-modernism. So what is eco-modernism and how does this lens address the dilemma of having to choose between sustainability or development?
1: I think it's a very interesting question because... Uh, especially in today's times when there's so much pressure on governments to choose between economic growth and a sustainable environment uh, to prevent extreme climate change. I think for most governments, it's become an either or question. But I think eco-modernism takes a step back and it's a philosophy that says that it's not an either or choice. And both economic growth and, uh, and the focus on sustainable environment can go hand in hand because what eco-modernism says says is that it is technological progress that will help us better our environmental needs and therefore both technology and uh, you know the protecting the environment can go hand in hand mm. so i mean uh, eco-modernism for example believes that you know the existing arrangements of uh, capitalism or market-based growth are not a problem but it's a part of the solution itself right and therefore the challenge is to craft policies and reform institutions to facilitate more economic innovation that actually helps solve this problem rather than, you know, con- restricting economic growth itself uh, to a kind of help the environment environmental question, right? Uh, and I think it believes that humans understand the importance of such technologies and market innovations as well. And I think humans will favor such technologies which are pro-environment themselves. And therefore, we don't really need to restrict economic growth to, you know, like, uh, for the sake of the environment. Yeah, working okay. go hand in hand. So it's yeah. not
0: a zero-sum game under eco-modernism. It's really something that can work in tandem with each other. I'm curious, how widely adopted is eco-modernism in policymaking? Is this uh, an approach that's fairly new? Or are there examples of this approach already being successfully implemented um, in countries or, or elsewhere?
1: Eco-modernism is a very new approach. I think the whole uh popularity of eco-modernism if i may say uh, started with there was a document released by many experts which was called the eco-modernist manifesto which gave a detailed outline of what exactly eco-modernism is and what kind of policies is eco-modernism looking towards right so i think that's where the whole popularity of eco-modernism started it's a fairly new policy but i mean there are still examples of eco-modernism in practice for example uh, something as simple as having GMVs, right? Genetically modified crops is a great example of eco modernism because uh, genetically modica- modified crops are innovations that can be designed to be environment friendly. They can be crops which are designed such that, you know, they, for example, consume less of water, right? That's one example. I think another example I can think of uh, for eco modernism can be the whole thing about fake meat, right? the whole philosophy of of that kind of an innovation basically says that you don't need to reduce your meat consumption. Instead, you can switch to this better option, uh, which does not, which basically saves the meat industry in a way and also addresses the environment question. Yeah,
0: Right. Okay, those are two very interesting examples. And I can definitely see how using this technology can also contribute to environmental pursuits. But at the same time, uh, both those examples are fairly controversial, fairly new, uh, but this is part of the ongoing debate of eco-modernism, I suppose. Now, I'd like to get into the nitty-gritty of your paper, but before we continue, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I would say that your paper primarily looks 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 at energy in terms of electricity generation. It doesn't cover the transport element of energy as much. Would that be accurate?
1: Yeah. So I think the paper that me and Brian wrote basically focuses on energy generation in terms of electricity, it focuses more on the supply and the demand side of energy. Uh, rather than the in-between, which is the transportation, you know, which is what connects the supply and demand. Yeah, definitely our focus has been much more on supply and demand. All
0: right. Why don't you lay the land for us in terms of Malaysia's current energy mix, as it refers to um, supply and demand for electricity? How diversified is this mix?
1: Currently, energy in Malaysia is heavily reliant on mainly three sources. Number one, natural gas number two, oil, and number three, coal. All these three together make up about 96% of Malaysia's total energy production today, right? So that's almost all of Malaysia's energy today. And all these three are non-renewable energy sources. I think looking at this in our paper, we have two broad goals. It's both a combination of being more diversified and secondly, also focusing on the environment, right? Uh, And I think keeping this in mind, basically our paper has proposed three broad objectives that any energy policy should have. Firstly, it's about having ensuring that, you know, the energy supply can meet the growing energy demand, right? Malaysia is still a growing economy and therefore the demand for energy is constantly going to increase and therefore the supply has to be able to meet the energy demand, right? Mm. Uh, the second thing I would say our, fo- our focus is on is ensuring that Malaysia's energy mix is much more environment friendly than it is today, right? And thirdly, it's also about efficient utilization of energy, which is making sure that any energy policy has to focus on reducing wastage of energy and making sure that, you know, energy consumption is as efficient as possible. So I think that's what I would say is the current uh, principle.
0: The breakdown that you gave is is pretty stark to be in the sense that um, the landscape for renewable energy as it stands is very, very minute at the moment. And even then it's uh, heavily on hydro, I believe, and biofuels. I think wind and solar barely feature in the pie chart in your paper. Why hasn't renewable energy been able to take off so far?
1: Uh, There are two or three main challenges. Number one, I think the biggest challenge for us is ensuring that supply meeting the rising demand of energy. So I think the biggest problem with renewable energy sources, if I may exclude nuclear for a moment, most other energy sources, including hydro, biofuels or solar, have a low efficiency in producing energy. So I think there's a metric that we also talk about in our paper, which is called the capacity factor. In simple terms, capacity factor is basically the percentage of time for which any energy source produces uh, its optimal amount of energy. And I think Malaysia had an energy policy in 2022 as well, where they said that they'll focus more on solar hydropower and bioenergy, Mm. right? But, But I think the problem is that these sources are nowhere as efficient. These are among the lowest efficiency sources in terms of energy. Although it is definitely a very good move uh, that the government is taking to move towards these sources. And these are the easiest to move towards, right, for a country like Malaysia. But definitely these are low-efficiency sources. So that's the biggest concern I think everybody has, right, when moving towards renewable energy, which is why it's been very hard. The other thing, obviously, is the transition barrier. So most countries have a built infrastructure for certain energy sources, right? Uh, and therefore, there's a certain status quo uh, involved. And therefore, definitely any kind of big transition, will take time, you know. I think I think it's very important to acknowledge that any big transition takes time. It'll definitely take at least a decade, uh, I believe, right, in terms of making sure that the infrastructure is right for uh, renewable energy sources. And thirdly, of course, there's also barriers with certain policies, right? I think the FIT and NEM policies are great steps, you know, to encourage adoption of renewable energy. However, electricity subsidies for uh, fossil fuels is something that, needs to be reduced, right? Mm. Uh, To also, you know, ensure that we can move towards renewable energy in Malaysia. All
0: right, we're going to get more into those individual policies that you mentioned in just a moment. I'm discussing policy recommendations for Malaysia's energy transition with Prahash Mehrotra, Research Fellow at the Adam Smith Centre. We'll have more from the conversation after the break, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to People Planet Profit. I'm Shazana Mukhtar, and with me today is Prahash Mehrotra, Research Fellow at the Adam Smith Centre. We're discussing a policy paper. Paper that he co-authored on Malaysia's energy transition and looking at some of the individual policy recommendations that they've put forth. Now, I'd like to come back to what you mentioned about um, some of the renewable energy policies that Malaysia does have uh, to incentivize this for both the supply and demand side. So if we take this in turn, um, maybe you can walk me through uh, the supply side policy, which is in the form of the feed-in tariff or FIT. Um, how effective has this policy been been and what would you suggest to address the gaps of the FIT?
1: The feed-in tariff policy is essentially meant to incentivize energy uh, producers to sell renewable energy to electricity distribution companies at a premium rate, so so that they can earn more money off uh, selling uh, renewable energy, and you know that encourages them to produce more renewable energy. Uh, however, currently. Uh, The way Malaysia's FIT policy is funded is through a renewable energy fund. So distribution companies pay money to the energy producers, right, Uh, to buy this energy at a premium rate, as I just said. And because they have to pay a premium rate, they need to get the money from somewhere. And therefore, there's a renewable energy fund that the Malaysian government set up to fund this policy, right? And this renewable energy fund is basically funded by charging a surcharge on domestic consumers' electricity bills. So consumers pay a higher amount for this energy indirectly, right? And so because there's a renewable energy fund involved, uh, the government has capped the amount of uh, producers who get this FIT license and are part of this FIT policy, uh, which prevents the uh, renewable energy expansion from happening because there's a cap on the number of energy producers who can be involved. Right. And this capping is done to, you know, prevent overcharging consumers. Right. So I think I think one of the suggestions that we give in our paper is to reduce the amount of uh, capping. Right. Gradually, of course. Right. So that there's not a there's not too much pressure on uh, consumer energy, electricity bills. And I think eventually we'll ha- the government should look in the direction of reducing this capping so that they can expand uh, the supply of renewable energy in Malaysia.
0: I see. In a way, because of this artificial cap, it prevents supply from growing Um, by lifting the cap that will enable more suppliers to enter into the market. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's good. Okay, so that's the supply side. On the demand side, we have the net energy metering, which is meant to increase adoption of renewable energy among consumers. I mean, what are the limitations of this policy as it's being implemented at the moment?
1: Right. So the net energy metering basically is the other side of the equation, which is the demand side of the energy market. And the NEM policy or the net energy metering policy basically uh, tries to increase consumption of renewable energy and tries to increase adoption of renewable energy among consumers. Through this policy, what essentially happens is, So suppose I have a solar panel in my house Mm. and if because I'm generating renewable energy, any excess energy left, I can send it back to the grid. Whatever energy I send back to the grid, that much money is saved on my electricity bill. So it's an incentive to consumers to adopt renewable energy. In Malaysia as well, it's been quite successful, which is why the government launched the third version of the NEM policy. But I think... uh, uh, a particular limitation with the NEM policy is that the consumers have to install solar panels themselves, which is extremely painful, right? It's, it, it does cost a lot of money and this money is not really accounted for. For an individual, it only makes sense to adopt this policy if the electricity bill is more than 300 RM. Because mm-hmm. if it's less than that, then financially they'll be paying more money to just install the solar panels. I think that's something that the Malaysian government should address, which is the installation cost. Okay.
0: All right. So there is that cost issue that's preventing um, more consumers from tapping into net energy metering. Looking at another policy that was mentioned in the paper is the blanket subsidy mechanism that's in place when it comes to electricity. I mean, how do subsidies impede Malaysia's renewable energy ambitions?
1: So as I mentioned before, right, one of the uh, Malaysia's energy market is heavily reliant on natural gas, coal, and oil. And one of the reasons that is the case is because of electricity subsidies, right, for domestic consumers, for these sources. Uh, I think uh, from 2014 onwards, the government did realize that these subsidies are a problem and they try to phase out these subsidies gradually. But I mean, the government still spends a lot of money on uh, electricity subsidies. For example, in 2022, they announced a, 5.8 billion uh, rm subsidy for electricity from these sources right these subsidies encourage adoption of uh, non renewable sources such as coal natural oil and gas because i mean consumers are getting a subsidies on these sources essentially the price that they are paying for Uh, these sources is lower and therefore they have lesser of an incentive to switch to renewable energy. Okay, so just pure
0: Uh, economics. There's really no need to switch to renewables if um, fossil fuels or carbon uh, sources are, are already cheaper. That said, Prahash, can the unwinding of subsidies be done with minimal economic pain. I mean, we're going through a time of high inflation. Everyone's sensitive to price increases at the moment. Um, can this be done without, I guess, the backlash that will come with higher prices?
1: Right, and I think that's one of the reasons why the government did give a very, very heavy subsidy during the period of COVID. You know, uh, however, I think in the short run, you know, while this temporary uh, hike in inflation period is going on, it's okay to you know have some subsidy to uh, you know help consumers. However, what I'm suggesting is more of a long-term policy. I think any energy policy has to be much more long-term and therefore the gradual removal of subsidies has to be again long-term. If Malaysia has to do it with uh, minimal economic pain, I think the key is simply, you know, I think this has to work in tandem with the NEM policy where, you know, we encourage consumers to adopt uh, cheap renewable energy. We encourage more innovation on renewable energy to make it much more cheaper for consumers. And thirdly, we phase out subsidies gradually. Uh, It's more about targeted phasing rather than, you know, just a blanket uh, removal of subsidies.
0: So it doesn't have to result in a shock to the economy, but it really does require careful strategizing and calibrating in order to, I guess, get everyone on the same page and have, this, uh, have the subsidies uh, taken off in a gradual manner. Um, Prahash, I've left the prob- possibly most controversial policy for last, and that's um, the call for Malaysia to consider nuclear energy. This was actually number one in your policy recommendations list. Why should this be considered?
1: I think the question about nuclear is, uh, of course, it's very controversial. Number one, I think the the good thing about nuclear energy itself is that nuclear by far has the highest energy output and it's the most efficient energy source there is. Nuclear energy has the highest capacity factor by far when you compare it to any other source. It'll definitely solve a big part of Malaysia's energy problem, which is ensuring that the energy supply is able to meet the growing demand of energy in Malaysia. I think Malaysia was earlier going towards nuclear, right? So uh, I remember this was back in 2000, before 2011, Malaysia had plans to commission its first and second nuclear plants in 2021 and 2022, by the way. But I think because of the Fukushima incident in 2011, which was a, a, a nuclear disaster, Uh, These plans have now been postponed uh, to a re-evaluation, I think, in 2030. Uh, And uh, because of the energy efficiency that it provides, nuclear will really change the energy game quite a bit. And therefore, I think Malaysia should not back off from considering nuclear. Okay.
0: Your paper, though, also acknowledges just the very low enthusiasm across the region, not just Malaysia, but across the region for nuclear energy. What do you think needs to be in place for public reception to this idea um, to improve?
1: Right. That's a great question as well. I think... uh, uh, one of the biggest barriers to nuclear, of course, is the, you know, safety concerns uh and the public sentiments against nuclear. And understandably so, you know, after the Fukushima incident in 2011. Uh, however, I think there's a need to acknowledge that nuclear plants today have a much higher standard of safety. Right. And at the same time, the actual data on safety of nuclear energy suggests very clearly that the whole uh, I think the media concerns about safety of nuclear are a bit overblown as well. Our paper does look at, for example, the deaths and causalities per terawatt of electricity production per energy source across the world. And we find that nuclear actually has a very low death rate, even much lesser than coal or oil or even natural gas for that matter. I think there are several things that the government can do to change its perception. I think firstly, the biggest power we have today is the data. The government should spend some money running uh, education initiatives to basically educate people make the public feel safer about uh, the idea of a nuclear plant. The public needs to be educated about the benefits of nuclear, what steps are being taken to ensure safety. And thirdly, Uh, about the data, like about like the safety concerns, which I just mentioned.
0: Right. Yeah. All right, Prahash. I I think you make some um, valid points there. And again, as you stressed earlier, these are long term plans. None of this can happen overnight. None of this can happen in a year. But it really is up to um, the government to be conscientious and conscious of the kinds of policies that they want to put in place. Thank you very much for sharing your insights today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.
0: I've been speaking to Praharsh Mehrotra, Research Fellow at the Adam Smith Centre. This has been People, Planet, Profit on the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. People, Planet, Profit on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.